for our time today. So Exodus chapter 6. Um, here's where we are. And there's, there's a few folks who are, who are new with us. There's a few folks who are um, joining us in this journey in Exodus for the first time. Um, and so, so here's what we started to see in the book of Exodus. Um, we started to see God's power displayed or at least promised. Um, next week, if you're coming in going like, hey, we've been talking about plagues, plagues are coming, tonight's the night, we get plagues, got one more week, got to wait, wait for the plagues for, for one more week. But next week, we're going to see God start to display his massive power over Pharaoh. But today's kind of the calm before the storm. It's kind of a, a pause, this kind of final statement from God to Moses and Aaron that lays the foundations that we're going to see in the next week. But in this chapter 6, in this, in this calm before the storm, there's a little bit of an interlude in the story. There's a little bit of an invitation to look back at what we've seen so far. And so that's an invitation for, for us as well. Um, we're six weeks in and six chapters in, so, so we're not covering every single nuance of detail that was in the original Hebrew or that kind of stuff. And so we're going to have some time at the last half of this teaching. Um, to do some Q&A. Uh, we've got some, some of you submitted some questions, some Exodus questions online. Some of you might have burning questions that have come up in your groups. You're like, I don't know how to answer this. I can't promise we'll know how to answer them. Um, but since we're a few chapters in, I want to give some opportunity to look back. A couple of you sent some really fun questions in, so thanks for that. Um, so we'll get there. Um, six weeks, six chapters in. Um, we've met most of the characters. If, you, if you're unfamiliar with this Exodus story, um, it's 100% okay if you are, but, but there's a story of this, this baby boy who was uh, told by the, by the oppressive ruler of his nation, Pharaoh, that all baby boys were supposed to be killed. And yet his mother and um, sister and even Pharaoh's own daughter and some other folks and midwives disobeyed Pharaoh's order, saved this baby. Um, he was raised in Egyptian royalty, uh, left Egypt and, and went back to his people and became a shepherd. Um, and this man's name is Moses. Um, God appears to Moses in this burning bush. If that's one of your questions, how'd he do it? I got no idea. So we can just answer that question right now because he's God and he can do all things that he wants. Um, he appears to, to Moses and says, to go back, my people are enslaved, my people are being oppressed, and, and be the justice bearer, be the redeemer, be the one to bring my people out of Egypt. And, and Moses says, I can't. And so they have this dialogue, and, and God sends Aaron, Moses' brother, to go with him. And last week in Exodus chapter 5, we saw Moses go to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Um, so, so the stage is set for this, for this pretty epic battle. Uh, Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. We would, we would call him a false god, but he was one of the, the hundreds or thousands of, of gods in the Egyptian pantheon. And then there is the God, capital G God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as he'll refer to himself today. So the stage is set for this battle. And, and here's the danger of the Exodus story. Even if you've never walked into a church gathering before, even if you've never opened a Bible before, there's a chance that if you know something of a story of the Bible, this, this is it. Like, this is one that's been made into movies, it's been reproduced in, in different mediums all, all across the world and all across history. And so it's, it's the danger is we can know just enough of the story to think we know the story. That makes sense? Um, the danger is going forward, like, like plagues are about to happen, and so we can get lost in, like, the epic film version of what happened. We can get lost in the events of Exodus. It's easy to focus on all the things and all the action that's going to happen. And so today, Exodus 6 is just this interlude. 
to kind of recenter on what truly is the center of Exodus or, or who truly is the center of Exodus. Today is a reminder that at the center of the story is God. And so today's going to be a little bit different, not just to be different. Um, we're just going to recap a little bit of what we've already seen. And, and in the first half of this teaching time, um, we're going to see God remind Moses of who he says he is and what he's already done. And these are really good reminders for us as well when we have times where we doubt or when it's hard to trust God. Um, and then we're going to zoom out and note a few things that we haven't yet mentioned, but that help us understand God more in the coming weeks. Um, so bottom line for tonight, like it's good and it's right to zoom out, to look back, to just rest in what God's already shown us and to see more of his work, both in the story of Exodus, but maybe even more so in, in the story of our own lives and in history. Because um, here's what we're going to see in Exodus 6. God's going to remind Moses and us of who God is, his character, and what he's already done. And based on that, Moses tells, or God tells Moses and us what he will do going forward. And so if you walk out of here with just one thing for tonight, this is not just a truth that was good for Moses to hear as he's about to go to Pharaoh, although it had to be super comforting for him. It's also true for us. And that's that our confidence in God's future acts and God's future promises is based on what he's shown to be true of his character and his past acts and his past promises. Why can we have confidence in God? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's he going to do? He's going to act as he has acted. What's our confidence? It's in seeing what he's done in the past to give us hope for the future. So if you're bored for the next few minutes, you can look back and see if you have questions from, from 1 through 6, because we are going to do some Q&A. Um, but for those of you who read Exodus chapter 6, and, and we would invite you always to, to read the chapter that we're going to be in so we can learn and glean together. And today's going to be a lot of conversation. So um, what stood out? What was new? What was hard? What was even a good reminder for you, for those of you who read Exodus 6 coming in today? Israelites had lost faith in, in, in even, um, I guess, Moses doing signs and those sorts of things to them previously. But in the now, the work got harder. They got discouraged. Yeah. And they started to pull back. Yeah. Even though there's this great promise ahead of them. Yeah. And then that even causes Moses to start to doubt. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Moses shows up. And again, I'm going to say this in an intentional way, hoping you'll pick up on the subtle foreshadowing. Moses shows up and there's a lot of excitement. The Savior's here. And then throughout life and, and not, you know, military saving and, and the, the cavalry riding in, the people who Moses came to save ended up rejecting him, causing him to doubt. Sound familiar? Jesus. That's what I mean. Yeah. What else? Anything else stand out? All right, well, let's dive in. Then if you weren't here last week, or again, if you're just joining us, where we left off, Moses and Aaron obeyed God's call. They're going to, they just went in chapter five to Pharaoh for the first time and asked and demanded and pleaded with Pharaoh to set God's people free. Long story short, that did not go well. Um, and so Pharaoh, who was already oppressive and unjust, made life harder for enslaved Israel. And so what Curtis just said is true. Israel complained to Moses. Moses complained to God. But there's two questions 
that framed chapter 5 that we have to revisit for tonight to make sense. The first is at the very beginning of chapter 5. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? If you weren't here last week, we spent the whole week talking about this. This is a question we all ask at some point. Who is God that I should obey? Adam and Eve asked it. Abraham and Sarah asked it. We all ask at some point, God, should I really obey you or is there someone else that I should obey? But then Moses asks a question at the end of chapter 5 that immediately goes into today's chapter. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to our people, to your people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. So the first half of Exodus 6 shows God's answer to these two questions. In a non-snarky way, God says, Pharaoh, you want to know who I am and why you should obey me? Moses, do you want to see why I've sent you? So let's read God's answer to Moses' question and Pharaoh's question. And, and as I read, we're going to talk about it after. So, so just pick up, note who God says he is, what's true of God's character, and what God says he's previously done. This is Exodus 6, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, right after Moses just asked those questions, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. And God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I have established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. All right, what did you notice? What does God says is true of who he is, and what does God remind Aaron and Moses that he's previously done? What's the text remind us of? Yeah, he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's more than just saying, hey, I showed up one day. For us to know God, what he's saying is, I chose to reveal myself. Right? Like there's, there's folks who go seeking God, and if we do it by our own power, if we expect God to show up in the ways that, that we want him to show up, we're going to be let down. There's even one of the prophets that says, like you... That God says, you look for me in the, in the thunderstorms and you look for me in the lightning. For those of us today, it might be like we're looking for signs in the sky or God, will you prove yourself? But he says, it's the still small voice that I show up. Right? So there's this reminder, God will reveal himself, but on, on God's terms and in God's ways. To fast forward a couple thousand years, God fully revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus. It's Jesus who, who fully represented the fullness of the character and work of God. What else? What else does God say that he's done? Who else does God say that he is? Covenant maker. Yeah, he's a covenant maker. I'm the one who established the covenant. It's not Abraham who established the covenant with God. It's not Noah who established a covenant with God. It's not Moses who kind of demanded the things that God would promise. It was God who initiated the covenant. Why is that good news? Because um, he's God, and then since he initiated it, it will stand. Yeah. He cannot do that. Right. There's so much confidence in that it is his doing. Right. 
if, if in any time humans establish a covenant or a promise, you, you hope it holds, right? But you've had kids who've promised you something. <laughs> it doesn't hold all the time. And, and our fickleness can set in or our deceptive hearts can set in because God is the Lord, the only perfect holy one. Because he established the covenant even when we break it, he still holds it. He honors it. What was the promise most fully revealed in? It's most fully revealed in Jesus. The true and better Moses who would save more than just one nation. God's provident, pro, uh, pro, covenant stands. Anything else? Anything else God says he does? Anyone else God says he is? He hears the groaning. Yeah. Yeah, we saw a couple chapters ago. He says, I see and I, I, I hear and I know my people. I would guess that in a room this size, that's, that's what you need to hear tonight. That there's someone here that's groaning and you just need to hear God. God hears you. God knows that to be true. And we don't have a priest who doesn't get us. The, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus understands our groanings and our sufferings. And God's not just waiting for you to get through it. He's with you in the valley of the shadow of death. It's good news. And there's a few more of these. I'm the one who, re, who recalls my, my covenant. I'm the one who not just establishes, but I recall, I remember my covenant. I'm the Lord, he says. There is no other. There's no one like me. There's this triangulation we're going to see going forward that says God is good, which means he cares. And second, God is holy, which means he is perfect. And third, God is powerful. And I want to submit to you that if any of those was lacking, then there'd be this weird relationship with God, and he wouldn't be who he says he is. If God was good and and holy, if he's perfect and caring but not powerful, then it kind of doesn't matter how good and caring he is. If God is good and powerful, if he's caring and powerful but not holy, then, then he's like any of us. Our motives kind of rise and fall, and if he's, which one did I miss? If he's powerful and holy, but not caring. Like that sounds terrifying to us because he's going to protect his self, his image in a way that wouldn't be caring and loving. So there's this piece of God that he says, I am the Lord. He said earlier, I am that I am. There is no one like me. Why do God's character, why does that trifecta, why do his past Actions and promises matter to Israel in this moment. They are so distraught. They're so beaten down. They're even more beaten down. They're looking for a savior. And God is being a little bit patient with them. We're going to see in a few minutes, they still don't believe. God is being patient with them to draw them to their point of need so that when he shows up, it is undeniable that God is who he says he is. Why is it good news to us that God's character is still true, that his actions and promises in the past still resonate? That's still the God we worship. The same God who is the covenant maker and covenant keeper, the same God who alone is Lord, the same God who chooses to reveal himself, the one who is good and powerful and holy 
who cares and is almighty and is perfect, that same God is the one who's leading us. And if we're walking through something, if we don't understand hypothetically what's going on in the world right now or in our lives right now or in some relationship right now, that's still the same God and he still is good and holy and powerful. So there's one more reason that God's character and previous actions and promises matter. And that's because based on who he says he is and what he's done in the past, the next verses show God telling Moses and Aaron what he will do in the future. And as we get into this, in, in, in kind of a traditional church calendar, we're not a super traditional church as seen here. Um, but if we were, like in, in a traditional historical church calendar, this past week started a season called Lent. And some of you may be familiar with that. Some of you may be utterly, maybe the first time you've heard it, other than the belly button kind. Um, I have a friend named Winfield Bevins, who's an Anglican priest, and he very simply describes it like this. He says, maybe you've heard of Lent, but have no idea what it means. Won't ask for a raise of hands, but surely that's someone here. Lent is a season of spiritual preparation in which we remember Christ's temptation, suffering, and death. Lent is a traditional time for Christians to draw closer to Jesus through prayer, reflection, fasting. If you know anything about Lent, it might be that, that people fast during Lent. But why? It's part of this drawing closer to Jesus through prayer and reflection and fasting (coughs) and repentance. Here's why I mention that. In the next chapters of Exodus, God is going to overtly call Pharaoh to repent. You know what repent means? simply means turn away from anything keeping you from God and turn to something better, which is to say turn to God. Pharaoh, repent. The timing of this series in kind of the Easter season is not a coincidence. Lent's invitation is a question for you, like like God called is going to call Pharaoh to repent, like God called Pharaoh to let his people go to worship the one true God, the, the question stands for us, who, who do you trust? Who do you worship? Do you trust yourself? Do you trust your power? Do you trust God? And so the rest of these chapters, as we walk through this season of Lent, God is going to show over and over and over again his goodness, his power, and his holiness. But he's also going to show his mercy and his warnings and his grace for people who trust in God. And so there's an invitation to reflect and repent and draw closer to Jesus for us this week. Where is your trust? Or maybe where isn't your trust? So I'm going, to read, I'm going to read the next verses. And again, pay attention to what God says about his power, his future promises. What does God say he will do? Exodus 6, starting in verse 6. It's on the screen. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, God telling Moses, Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. All right. What does God say he'll do? What are promises he makes here? What are his future acts? 
bring them out of Egypt. Egypt, I'll, I'll deliver you. I alone have the ability to, to essentially usurp the false god that is Pharaoh and claim true authority and bring you out of the oppression and slavery by sending a redeemer. Again, there's so much foreshadowing in Exodus of what God will eventually do through, through Jesus. Israel can't get free, and so God sends one to represent him and free them. That's the good news that we say about Jesus. What else has God promised? I will is in these, this, these verses so many times. What else does he say? Well, I think it's just interesting that it's such a string of promises. Mm-hmm. This is like telling your kids, we're going to go to Worlds of Fun, then we're going to go out for ice cream, then we're going to go to and then you're going to have a sleepover, and then you're going to get a pony. Yeah. And then it's like, wait a minute, no, I would never make a string of promises. Yeah. It would yeah. be much more timid, you know, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, I'm, I might give you the land if you... You know, listen to the first fourth. If yeah, if if you keep your room clean all week, then I'll then I'll give you the promised land. No, it's I will I will based on who I am, not on what you do or don't do. I will bring you to the land I promised, and that's that's a, a, an actual land. Is also the the return of of the Hebrew idea of shalom, like overarching goodness and hope and peace. And we're reminded, guys, that that. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. God loves you as one of his children. He has an even greater inheritance for you. There is a better, a true better and lasting promised land that is true for anyone who is one of God's children. He also says, just to to move us on a little bit, I'll take you to be my people and you shall know that I'm your God. There's this this beautiful, unconditional love and rescue and even adoption in this. You're not going to be enslaved, oppressed, orphans, forgotten, rejected. You will be part of a family. Like these and others are just glorious truths and they're needed reminders, but does Israel receive them? their external hardship and they're just internally crushed. Their broken spirit. You've been there. Or you know someone who's been there. Leads to them not trusting God. I'm reminded of a, of a um, man who comes to Jesus to ask for healing later. And Jesus says, do you believe that I can do this for you? And the man says, I believe. Will you help my unbelief? And for those of us who feel crushed at times, that might be the only prayer we can utter. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't say, well, maybe one, maybe if you get to you know, 80% belief, then we're good. He says, no, be healed. Israel isn't going to believe. And, and yet we're going to see God carry out powerful, powerful signs and plagues. And guess what Israel is going to do by the end? They're going to believe, and they're going to be blessed, and they're going to enter out of the, they're going to leave uh, uh, Egypt and and enter into the land that God promised them by the end of this book. There's some folks who are just in such anguish and wounding and, and just the fog of a situation that it's hard to see the truth. These are folks who surround us every day, followers of Jesus and not followers of Jesus. But even when we're in that spot, you know this, you're longing for something or someone to put your hope in. Even when you're in the most utter despair, you're longing for something to make it better, to, to give you faith and something to trust in. Is that true? And if we're not trusting God, 
Who are we left to trust? Something false or fading that will let us down, or if we're honest, a lot of us end up trusting ourselves, who are equally false and fading and will let us down. You know who hasn't trusted God so far in Exodus? Pharaoh hasn't trusted God so far. Moses hasn't trusted God so far. Israel hasn't trusted basically everyone. And so we're in good company. And so it feels like it, it's, it is a good spot to, to zoom out. I want to answer a few questions um, still on our end time as tacos are going to show up here in a little bit. But the first, uh, the, the first question comes from this, from this question of power, comes from this question of, of authority. Just for the record, the rest of chapter 6 is a genealogy. Um, it's a list of people that simply at, at least says the, Moses and Aaron are real people. This is a real lineage. These are real events. Um, they're very real humans who did this very real thing in a very real part of history with a very real Pharaoh. So we'll kind of pick up the story next week. But I want to dwell on this idea of power because it's a couple of the questions that came in. Um, we just said, if you don't trust God, who are you going to trust? You're going to trust yourself. And in chapter 7, God is going to show his power over Pharaoh, over people, over gods, over creation. God is power. But through the Bible so far, even as people consistently deny God's power and trust their own, we've seen God consistently invite people to trust and depend on him. This is important for the rest of Exodus. And that leads us back to the fun topic of circumcision. Those are the first two questions that came in when we said we were going to do a Q&A, so we'll talk gently, gently around it. Um, but the first question is, is uh, that I have for you, before we get to the question, the question is why did uh, Moses have to circumcise his son? Um, my question for you is what are some other commands in the Bible where God overtly says you should trust my power over a common worldly power? It's a big question. I'll ask it again. What are some other commands in the Bible where God, that God gives to overtly display his power over a common worldly power? I'll give you one example. Sabbath is that. Sabbath is rest, but it's also a display of who, who, who's, whose provision are you relying on? The rest of the agrarian world worked seven days a week. So by taking one-seventh of their week and saying God is better and we're trusting him to produce the fruit was a huge act of reliance and dependence. Are you going to trust you and your workers to produce the fruit, or are you going to trust God? Anything else come to mind that's similar to that? Manna. Manna. Yeah, yeah. We'll see this later in Exodus, um, that, that, that God is the one who provides food when there is no food for his people wandering in the desert. Good. What else? Jesus telling disciples to cast the nets on the other side of the ship. Yeah. Yeah, they, and you wouldn't think. I mean, it's fishing boat, right? Like, Unless there's some reef underneath them, like what's the difference in the right side and the left side? And yet they can't catch fish, and he says the fish are over here, and all of a sudden he provides. Revenge. Re- Re- Revenge. Interesting. Is, is, he's supposed to, you're supposed to give it to him for yes. justice, not, not wield it and decide it ourselves. Yeah, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So, in some ways, circumcision is similar to all of these things. Yeah, there's a there's deep there's, there's multiple meanings of circumcision, um, but it was it was true at the time. Okay, I'm gonna be a little bit vague here. Follow me on it. Um, it was true at the time, as through a lot of history, that phallic things symbolized worldly power. So, in part, cutting off some of the thing that symbolized worldly power was a visible sign. You can't trust in your own power. Can I leave it there? Um, and, and so in that way, 
we said Moses was raised in the Egyptian household, Egyptian royalty. He was taught what worldly power, worldly authority looked like. In leaving Egypt, he pushed aside that identity and, and, and started to worship and know the God of Israel. But basically what a lot of folks think was happening is that he hadn't fully given up that idea of worldly power. He hadn't fully obeyed God's command that we saw first in Genesis. If you're truly mine, you'll be circumcised. Again, as an act of saying, not my power, but yours. And so there were things that Moses were hang- was hanging on to. He wasn't quite ready to give up the worldly power represented by that. Make sense? So in, in the New Testament, this is still true. Like the circumcision of the heart is talked about. What does what your heart pursue other than God? Almost anything. Right, And so the, the, the imagery, the symbolism, the circumcising the heart says, cut off the other things that you're trusting. Cut around the, 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 the fog so that your heart can be set purely on me. Cut out all the other things so your heart belongs to God. Make sense? Related question came in. How did, uh, how did Moses' wife know what she needed to do to save Moses? Um, there are some commentators who think this was probably like an ongoing conflict between the two, like a marital conflict. Um, if you'll remember, uh, her dad, Moses' father-in-law, was a priest of Midian. Um, he was probably, best as we can tell, a priest of the God of Israel. So he would have known the command. She would have been raised in a, in a family and tradition that performed circumcision. And so if he was claiming to be part of Abraham's broad family, she would have known that her son was supposed to be circumcised. And so he, holding on to worldly power, she saying, no, we need to do this, um, gave her the ability to understand what was going on. So there's all sorts of just power dynamic and power wrestles throughout Exodus. I even think, if you were here a couple weeks ago, Matt Tatum brought a shepherd's staff that he received when he was uh, ordained and installed as a church elder. And it made me remember at the time when Matt was installed, um, it was common in our vein of, of the church to either give new elders a Bible or a sword. And the Bible thing was always weird to me. It's like by the time you're, you're to that kind of point in church leadership, you should have one by now. Um, so you don't necessarily need one of those. And the sword, well, I get some of the symbolism there. There's just some things about kind of worldly power dynamics that, that should cause us pause. And in the same way, like God had taken Moses out of Pharaoh's household, who's wielding a sword to ensure his authority by, by commanding all the babies be killed, took him for 40 years to be a shepherd and, and taught Moses what true power looked like. That makes sense? Those are a couple questions that have come in. What questions do you have? There's a couple more, but I want to see if there's any in the room before we do the last ones or twos and wrap up. Any questions from Exodus so far? What's meant by the uncircumcised lips in the last verse? The uncircumcised lips in the last verse of, of this chapter, six. Uh-huh. of 6? Yeah, we're going to pick up with that a little bit um, okay. next time. So, circum- again, circumcision, there's there's something something relying on, some, on something else. Um, there's something in me that's relying on something else. So I'm not pure. I haven't been consecrated or set apart um, is, is some of what he's saying. So Moses is saying, God, I'm not pure enough to go. You just said all these things that you are, I'm not that. And so he's again still doubting some of God's power. He's just saying, I'm, I'm not the guy yet again. And we'll see God answer him 
in the next chapter. Yeah? yeah I have a question. Um, I've always found it strange that uh, it feels like God only moves after we've come to that point of actually doubting. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, for instance, if when he told the children of Israel the promise, uh, he only acted after they had gone back into the place of distress. Mm-hmm. And even, I've seen that in people's lives throughout the Bible, the time that they say, okay, I've given up, you, you're not going to act. Like, yeah. Where are you? Yeah. Like, where you feel like you're actually now doubting of I wouldn't or use this word come to the end of yourself. Mm-hmm. Seems like that's when he steps up and says, Okay, now I will do this, then you will do this. Are there circumstances or situations where God will act without us ever coming to that place? Yeah. It's like a it's like a necessary thing. I've I've seen in my life sometimes I've been so confident and faithful, and it seems like he's not gonna come. By the time I'm like, ah, come on, this is too much. I've waited yeah. for too long, and then he comes to me yeah. like, so you're waiting for me to doubt, like, with this test. That's how it feels to yeah. me. Is it, is, is it That's a great is, question. It is, or yeah. is it like a, a necessary part of the process? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I can't speak for everyone in the world. Um, I'm curious if anybody else has any any folks in Scripture who come to mind who just kind of, yeah, I'm in. Mary comes to mind. The angel appears to Mary and, and says, here's what's going to happen. And Mary says, okay. Noah comes to mind. Um, you're going to build an ark and I'm going to flood the earth. And Noah seems to go, okay. Um, and, and so I wonder if there's some of it that is very real in the sense of that that's very common. Um, that we all have to come to the end of ourselves and trust God. And, and some, frankly, if I can go to kind of spiritual gifts, some have the gift of faith. And so it's a little bit easier for us, not me, for them. <laughs> it's a little bit easier for those people. Maybe some of you in this room, just is, like God opens the door and you go, yeah, I, I, I'm, I don't know exactly what next step is, but here we go. And for others of us, we put up barriers and do kind of what Moses and Aaron did and what, do what Israel did and do what, what Pharaoh did. Um, I think it's a both and. Anything come to mind for anyone else on that? Anyone else in the Bible? Just go, yeah. Well, I don't I have to come Sarah to the full end of myself. Kind of the I mean, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, she laughed. Yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. Right, tell me another. <laughs> yeah. Even, uh, let's see, John the Baptist's father. Uh, you know, exactly right. The yeah. same thing. Well, you don't believe it, so you're not going to say anything for right. the next nine months. So. Yeah. And yeah. That's more the unbelief. So right. I'm not sure I'm <laughs> you answered both. the other question. I think you see both, yeah. And we probably have moments of both in our lives and moments of both in our in our communities. I'm more like you. Yeah, I mean I was even I was dwelling further on the like even Noah, yes, he makes that commitment, but the rest of the world's falling apart right. at that point. You know? Yeah, so that's like true. That's kind of basically said, okay, you've reached the end, the world's reached the end of itself, but now, you know. Now I'm going to finally bring somebody yeah. forward to do that, and um, and then even Mary, I think, even the, is a good example of like, where's the Savior? Yeah, <laughs> we've been waiting all this time. Yeah, um, but yeah, so in some way, like God using some people who have that faith, I think that's a really good. One. Yeah, um, Mary and Noah, great examples, but then also um, recognizing that that pattern does exist, and it's like okay. We, we're going to be in that pattern. Okay. The pattern of God waiting longer than we think he should. Right. To yeah. wait till things get worse than we think that they should get before yeah. he steps in and yeah. does something about it. That's what you're saying. 
And if you look at the examples that you gave, um, I, I wasn't merely re, 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 referring to the initial, because I think the children of Israel, when they were initially told, they responded with faith. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, they stayed with it. This example of like they That's were going right. like we're going to be doing this Egypt like the snakes there. Like, yeah. They were excited that like, they were in power. Yeah. But then after that, now when it took longer, now is the place where I feel like because I, I mean when initial when something is made a promise, you get excited. Yeah. You can easily receive it. You mm-hmm. can uh, do that. But the process of the the promise and the fulfillment. Is there a place where people don't doubt? People yeah, that's right. But when they've just stood throughout the whole promise and never really uh, wavered to and from. I look at Christ when uh, before he would like, take this car. I wouldn't say he doubted um, because he was Christ. He was perfect. But there was an aspect where he was like, take this car. Like, yeah. We want to use another way. Yeah. Apart from Jesus, I'm trying to think of people that were like maybe Mary will be one example because I don't see any of that doubting. Mm-hmm. But they actually continue just to stand the faith or the test of time. Yeah. They never doubted, and then the promise was fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. Or, it's, or there will be some aspect, or it's necessary for people to come to a place where, in that long waiting, they were like, okay, I really don't know what's going on. Yeah. yeah. I think what, what has to be true universally is, is, is coming to the end of ourselves. Right, and so whatever process and however long that takes, it's, it's no. It's, maybe it's not a coincidence that keep the faith is, is a phrase that shows up throughout many New Testament letters because it's hard sometimes to keep the faith. It'd be easy if it's like, hey, this ha- this is going to happen. It happened. Yeah. There's some of that. Like we wouldn't need to. Yeah. Our test would. Our, our test would. Our trust wouldn't be tested. It's funny, but I'm um, sorry I keep going because the times are full. Like I, I'm gonna just cut short this time frame. I've been waiting, so at the moment I start doubting, yeah, then it comes up. Like <laughs> I'm telling that a weekend sometimes I feel like doing it, and that has worked. Yeah. So I don't understand it. I I don't really know how to explain it, but. I wouldn't want to out because of me in myself I'm saying I want to believe God, I want yeah. to stand. But then it seems like it's not gonna happen. I'm like, but last time I actually came to mm. doubting or to start thinking like it's never gonna happen or saying, okay, but I'm I'm not happy anymore, then he can be then he would come through. Do I necessarily have to be doing that all right. the time? So it's it's weird weekend yeah. cycle. Yeah. No, and you're and you're right, and, and that's even part of why we're talking through this chapter in this way of like, okay. We've, we've all had those moments like, God, are you really? Will you truly dot, dot, dot? And, and some, of what, some of what God gives us his word to remind us is, look at, look at how consistent I am. Look at what I have already done. Trust who, who I say that I am so that when we are in this spot where it is taking longer than we would like or that kind of stuff, we can still go back and go, okay, this, if, if this was on my terms, we'd be done by now. But this is on your terms. But look, this is who you are. There's some goodness in that. Another question was, did God, uh, did, did God punish um, Israel for staying in um, Egypt for 400 years? They went during a famine. They stayed for 400 years. Was that part of God's design or was that disobedience? Um, and there's different folks who have different takes on this. In Genesis 15, before, before Israel ever went to Egypt, God said that they're going to be there for 400 years. And so it seemed like it was at least part of God's plan. 
Um, and one of the best cases I've read said, as hard as the time in Egypt was, Israel thrived there, numerically thrived. Didn't you know they were in, in, in oppression and slavery, but but on a literal sense, as a nation, they thrived and grew so that when they left, they were wealthy and strong enough to defeat the inhabitants that were in the land that God promised them. Um, and so there was at least some thought out there that it was part of God's plan to leave them. Um, we're going to have some more questions over dinner. I'm recognizing the, uh, the, the time here. Um, and, and there's plenty more to talk about. So the last one I'll address is, is, is Exodus more about liberation from literal slavery or from spiritual slavery? Because on one level, it's, it's a question that is, is this Israel's story or does this story apply? Um, and I would love for us to take some time to discuss it. But I think where we would come to is it's a story of both. That, that, that tangible salvation, literal salvation, being freed from injustice and oppression is part of God's heart, as is obviously like the spiritual salvation he offers. Um, Jesus in Luke 4 quotes Isaiah in kind of giving what his ministry's mission statement is, and he says that I, I came to set free the oppressed and I came to heal the blind, uh, to, to, to give sight to the blind and heal those in need. And there's this deeply spiritual sense to it, but Jesus also says, no, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do that as well. And so every story of the Bible points us to, to Jesus. Every hero of the Bible, Moses, we're seeing in this chapter, is imperfect, but he points to a perfect hero. And so literal salvation from slavery is a thing. And also, not, not but, or, doesn't have to be one or the other. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a liberation that is very real, and God still has us display his gospel, even as we prayed for what's going on in Ukraine. God, would you display the, the, the gospel through freeing your people? It also points toward a better redeemer and a better redemption, a more full redemption. God's still making himself a people for himself. God is still the one who reveals himself and gives and the promises and, and keeps his promises even when we don't. And so literal salvation is real. And Moses was the one God sent to redeem. But we also have the ability to look back on our bigger salvation, our, our more eternal salvation, and an even better Savior. Jesus, like Moses, was sent to God's people. He was rejected. He obeyed. And so we're going to end our time before we switch to, to, to songs and then dinner by celebrating who Jesus is by taking communion. So if you don't have your, your cups, go grab them. Um, but we're simply going to give, give thanks to God that in, his, in the bread, in the wafer, we're, we're able to look on his body, um, his broken body, which was shed for us. He gave himself more than Moses did. He's the true and better Moses whose, whose, whose body was broken for your redemption, for your freedom from slavery. Let's take and eat. And then blood is going to become a theme that we see over and over again in Exodus going forward. And we'll fast forward a few weeks and say that it was because of Israel's covering by the blood of a sacrificed lamb um, that they were spared some of the justice and some of the, uh, the, the discipline that God carried out over Egypt. And so in the same way, we are covered by the blood of a greater lamb and we are spared the punishment we deserve for sin. Take and drink the blood of Christ.
God, very simply, I want to thank you for your promises. And I want to thank you for your covenant. And I want to thank you for your character. I want to thank you that we can look back at your past work throughout history and most fully in Jesus. And I thank you that we can trust who you are throughout history and most fully in Jesus. And I thank you that because of that, we can have confidence in the future because of history and most fully in Jesus. It's in your son's name that we pray all these things.